0: You're supposed to be talking like you're talking four inches from a friend's ear.
1: Four inches from
0: your friend's ear. Uh huh. So you're not yelling at the mic, and oh, you're not. Um, okay. So I'm in a, a hearing at the back of the room. <laughs> but you're but you're not whispering, and I'm you're, not whispering. You're talking. I really you're am talking. saying I can't
1: believe that legislator just said that.
0: Hello. I'm Annette, and we're going to talk about education. And today, I'm happy to have Michelle Smith, who is Advocacy and Policy Vice President That's right. of Raise Your Hand, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Michelle Smith, and she's a friend of mine as well. So we're going to just have a conversation about education in Texas and maybe beyond. Great. Thanks for being here, Michelle. Thank you. Good morning. Tell us about your path in the world of education.
1: Um, So I grew up in a family that was very active in the community, um, went to public school. My family was very supportive of public schools. My dad went on to the school board in Colleen when I was uh, late elementary, early middle school age, and he was always the swing vote. He was the guy that was in the middle of the room making some really tough decisions, and I know that did not surprise you, knowing my dad, (laughs) and so so
0: he didn't um, stop there either. he didn't
1: stop there and so it just really made an impression on me watching him work on the school board Um, And making some really hard decisions on behalf of the kids who needed our help the most as a community. And he was always in the newspaper. Everybody always wanted to know how he was going to vote. And so that's where we started.
0: And who were those kids who most needed his help?
1: Um, He always said that it was, you know, the, the kids that didn't have anybody to advocate for them besides, you know, somebody on the school board sometimes. And he was always amazed at how well kids, how resilient kids were. And we, you know, growing up in Colleen, there were some tough situations in Colleen back then. Um, especially, It was kind of a rough community. And he just felt like somebody had to, to advocate for them and to be a voice for them and uh, get them to the finish line, whatever that finish line was for them. And so that, that definitely made an impression. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I was an elementary music teacher for a very long time and loved kids, loved being the person that knew every kid in the school. So sometimes I would see kids that weren't successful in other classrooms, but they found success in mine. Helping them find their voice through music was really fun for me, that they found success. I started a Ph.D. program at Texas State somewhere along the way. That was in 2009, and I was frustrated with the disconnect between policy and what I saw happening in my classroom, and my dad said, you should go talk to this guy that's been lobbying forever in education. I can't imagine who that might yeah, be. <laughs> David Anderson at Hillco Partners, and uh, he said, David, will set you straight. He'll tell you how it is in the Capitol, and so we started chatting. We got to be friends. He offered for me to come work a legislative session. And I quit my teaching job and went to work the 2011 legislative session. And it was one of the most brutal sessions that we've had in recent history. And it was, it was an incredible experience. And I got bit by the policy bug and I never wanted to
0: leave. And that was a tough session for public ed. It was.
1: I mean, major cuts uh, in school finance. There was a lot of disagreement amongst administrators and teachers. I mean, to the point that we were sitting on opposite sides of the gallery. Uh, It was one of those sessions. The education community was divided. There wasn't money. And everybody was having to make really hard decisions.
0: So what is your current
1: role? I joined Raise Your Hand a little over a year ago as their director of governmental relations. I was and am their internal lobbyists. Um, And then we contract with other people to help us at the Capitol. And uh, recently was promoted to vice president of policy and advocacy. And so we have a really robust policy team here at Raise Your Hand that works at the Capitol and try to represent, try to be in the middle of the room. Here we are talking about being in the middle of the room again and advocate for schools and kids and teachers and families for 5.4 million kids. Uh, We're also getting into some advocacy work around the state, helping other people find their voice with their legislators to register and to vote and become active in their communities.
0: How does your organization serve their constituents? I know raise your hand there's a whole yeah. lot of things. I so mean, just at a high our level.
1: constituency is 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 an interesting conversation. We have lots of audiences. I think early on in Raise Your Hand, it was primarily the legislature that we were trying to influence, and it it was a small group of people that just really felt passionately about particular education issues. And so I don't know that we really had a constituency back then except to be the whole state, you know what I mean? And it's grown into something really different. We have a lot of programmatic work here at Raise Your Hand now, whether it's school principals, college students that are part of our Charles Butt Scholars program our blended learning programs. And so we're building a a constituency of people that feel the way we do about public education and want to advocate for kids. I would say broadly speaking, and it sounds really cheesy, is that our constituency is kids. and, And the future of Texas. And the future of Texas. Yeah, our founder is obviously very interested in Texas being thriving as far as a business concept is concerned. He owns the H-E-B grocery stores. And so of course he wants an educated workforce. But I think it goes beyond that for him, that he's just really trying to invest in everybody in the state of Texas and make sure that they have an opportunity at success, whatever that looks like for them.
0: And for those who don't know, the founder is Mr. Charles Butt, the wonderful Mr. Charles Butt, who is a friend to the state of Texas and education. I'm going to ask a question that I've been asking for a long time. Mm -hmm. Who is planning for the future of Texas?
1: you know, I I spend most of my time with the legislature. And so I'm always going, my first inclination is always going to be to say, I really do believe that we have elected officials that are planning for the future of Texas. They're looking beyond their own election cycle, whether that's two years or four years and asking the really hard questions about what do we want the state of Texas to be like in 20, 30, 40 years. And it's a changing state. And so I hope hope that our elected officials are looking down the road and talking about how many people there are going to be here, what our challenges are going to be from transportation to water to education to whatever, and also having a really honest conversation about what our kids are going to look like. You know, Hispanic students are the majority in our classrooms right now, and they have to come to grips with reality that Texas doesn't look like it looked 30 or 40 years ago. And so I hope that they're looking down the road. We're certainly trying to look down the road and and address the issue of what we want education to look like? (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough question.
0: It is. Thank you. I'm going to throw kind of two questions. So talk about current system of education and how it's changed since you've been involved since Mm. your early days as a teacher.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that... You know, when I started teaching, people still thought very much of a classroom with 20 to 25 kids and nice little uh, rows of desks, and everybody sat and got the information. And I think that probably when I started teaching, I felt I didn't have desks in my classroom because I was the music teacher, but it was very much, I'm the teacher, you're the student, I'm going to give you the information, and you're going to learn. And you're going to decide whether you're going to learn or not, right? And, you know, I have two teenage boys and they feel very differently about their learning environments. And so here at Raise Your Hand, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to innovate, how to create classrooms that are going to appeal to today's kids. And so I think that looks like using a lot of technology in the classroom. It means letting them have ownership over what they're learning, when they're learning it, how they're learning it. And the challenge of that is that we have 5.4 million kids. So how do you differentiate learning? learning for every single one of those kids in every single classroom. Um, Our blended learning program is so much fun to watch because it's very data focused and the kids and the teachers have access to that data and they're assessing their learning in real time. I think that's what I want us to get to as a state and move away from one test on one day into a model where kids always know how they're doing as far as their learning is concerned, what gaps they need to go back and fill, and how their teachers can help them on that path. They want to be part of that process. They don't want a gotcha system that says at the end of the school year, you either learned or you didn't learn. They want to know every single day, what am I learning and how do I need to improve?
0: Well, you've kind of addressed some of my next (laughs) questions. So so along those lines, do you see the legislature supporting us and moving that direction as a state?
1: To some extent, yes. For example, um, part of House Bill 3 this session had $12 million over this biennium that we just entered for blended learning. And so school districts, are going to be able to access those funds and think about how they change their classroom instructional models, which is great. Um, Larry Taylor has been really, really passionate about blended learning, and we love to watch that. And I think think we're getting there. I don't think our assessment system is there yet. We still have a testing system that says, okay, we're going to test everybody at the end of the year. And I get it. I get that we need to see how the system is doing. But honestly, you could just do a sample across the state and and answer that same question instead of putting so much stress on every single kid on one test on one day. That tells me very little about the experience that student had over the Course of a school
0: year. And I've heard that for years and years and years, and yet we haven't moved to that sampling we system. Haven't.
1: We haven't. And it's it's fascinating to watch. And I think that our A through F system pushes us further down that road in a, a not very productive way. Uh, as a parent and as an educator, I would want to know more about my students instead of less. I think it's kind of silly to put one letter on an entire campus experience or an entire district experience. I'd love to see them broaden that into, you know, multiple categories and say, you get an A on this, you get a C on this, you get an F on this. And then I know as a parent or a teacher where I need to improve instead of just saying, well, you're a D. Good luck. Right. and so the, the assessment and the accountability systems are, are intricately tied to each other and we have to get to a more robust conversation than where we are right now.
0: Back up just a little bit and explain what blended learning is for those who don't understand that.
1: Blended learning and, and there are people in our shop that could explain it much better than <laughs> I could but blended learning is to me when I see it in a classroom when we go to, to visit classrooms and anybody can go visit one of our blended learning programs by the way. You can get on our website and see where the next one is and, and go see it in action, which is lots of fun, is um, incorporating technology into classrooms to inform instruction. So some people think of blended learning as, you know, a kid in front of a computer all day, and the teacher is just working with a small group off to the side. That's not the blended learning that we're talking about at Raise Your Hand. They're working in groups, they're working with their teacher, they're using computers to further inform their learning on an issue, they're using data, every. Single single day to inform their learning and their instruction. And the thing that we've found out is, you know, it, it has to have buy-in from a campus and from their leaders to do it right. You can't just, you know, throw a couple of computers in a classroom and say, you're doing blended learning, yay. It really does require a, a culture shift in that on that campus or in that school district. And it also costs a lot of money. And so that gets into a conversation of people saying that money doesn't matter. Well, if you're gonna do a really high quality blended learning system, then you do need additional dollars to make that happen. And I think that's what the legislature recognized with House Bill 3 and putting in those additional funds this session.
0: So you would say the barriers that stand in the way of moving to the kind of educational system we would desire for our children and our students in our state, the barriers would be funding? Some of it is. And what else?
1: Um, You know, we're 43rd in the nation as far as how much money we spend per student. And we do fairly well academically for the money that we're spending. We're middle of the pack academically. And so you can make the case that we're being really efficient with the dollars that we have. And if we're going to move up the rankings as far as student performance, then you know we're going to have to put more money into the system. So yes, money matters. I think that we're finding that we need more high-quality teachers in our hardest-to-teach campuses. Um, That was a big conversation. They had this session about Um, You know, however you want to feel about differentiated pay for teachers, we do need to recognize that we need more training for our teachers. We need more high quality teachers in our classrooms. And we need to make sure that our students that are at risk, you know, whether it's poverty or whatever, that they have the best teachers that we can possibly put in front of those kids. You know, my kids, I was reading to them before they were born. And so, you know, they they can have a bad teacher one year I hate saying bad teachers I shouldn't say that but you know a less than stellar teacher they could have one for a year and survive that academically but our at-risk kids the teachers that are in front of those kids are not great sometimes and that is detrimental to their future success I mean you look down the road it balloons over time as far as kids not getting the learning that they need and being thus be, not being able to get the job that they need essentially it, it's frightening to think about um, and so we need we need more money in the system But we also need to make sure that our teachers are the best that they can possibly be.
0: Do you think that in Texas public education and in our schools, we're doing a lot of things right?
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Talk about (laughs) that. I think we are doing a lot of things right. (laughs) Um,
0: Because we've talked about what we aren't doing right
1: totally it's frustrating and that there are people that try to create a narrative that our public schools are failing and i was at a presentation this week that our commissioner spoke to a group of people and he said we're doing better than we have ever done are we satisfied with where we are of course not I totally agree with him. We are doing better than we have ever done. Our expectations for every kid are higher than they've ever been. And there are teachers doing amazing things in our classroom every single day. You know, I think back to my dad being on the school board and being amazed at kids who did find success that came from really, really difficult places in their lives. Teachers are working miracles in our classroom every day for those kids. And they're working long hours and for not much pay. And they do it because they love kids. And it's so fun to watch. You know, at Raise Your Hand, we like to tell amazing stories about what's going on in our classrooms. And it's so fun to to go out into those places and to watch our team capture those stories of the amazing things that our schools are doing for our kids.
0: And I love that Raise Your Hand Texas is doing that because we are doing great things in our classrooms and yeah. y'all do a great job of focusing on that and, and mm-hmm. really telling some good stories.
1: Yeah the vast majority of our schools are doing an incredible job against some really tough odds and you know we need to support those campuses in those districts that aren't and not just create a system that. Is, is toxic and, and unhelpful. And so that, that's what we, we try to balance that out as an organization and making sure that people know that there are great things going on in our schools.
0: Why should our listeners care about all this?
1: Well, I'll go to our phrase that's on our front window of our building. The future of Texas is in our public schools. <laughs> um, it, I know it sounds very canned, but it's true. There's 5.4 million kids in our system and we can't import enough talent into the state of Texas to get where we want to go economically from a business perspective. It's not possible. And so we have to realize the challenges that we have here in our state. And we have to address those, and it starts with our kids. And in a lot of cases, it starts with really, really young kids. There was a focus this session on full-day pre-K for eligible student populations because we know that if those kids are going to be reading on grade level by third grade, that we have to get them earlier. We have to get them into the classroom in a high-quality program all day. So we have to invest as a state. If we don't, we're going to look up in 20 or 30 years, and we're going to be in a pretty terrible situation from a... A business and an economic perspective.
0: And for those who don't know, we've talked about your dad, but we've not mentioned who he is. Yes. <laughs> he ended up being in the house and the chief author of House Bill 3, correct? House Bill 5. House Bill 5. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm, I know. I'm back in a I'm, I'm wrong session. That's uh, all right. So yeah. House Bill 5, that helped lead us into some good things. And of course, this representative and chairman, Jimmy Don Aycock, mm-hmm. is who your dad is. And he's a great advocate for public schools and always has been. Yeah thank you. I appreciate that. It was
1: fun to watch him work through that process with a lot of people and remember before that we were moving toward 15 standardized tests that every kid was going to have to pass before they graduated from high school and I totally understand people's logic to say you know we need to make sure that every single one of our kids are getting a good experience in every single one of those classes and they need to pass a test but it just goes back to that overemphasis on one test on one day and And I think our our teachers are doing amazing things and making sure our kids are learning every day. And uh, he was also really concerned with kids checking out if they started to, to not do well on some of those tests and just piling up over time. And it becomes such a daunting environment that they would say, I'm out, I'm, I, I'm not going to do this.
0: And they did. And they, Lots of them did. Yeah,
1: they did. And, you know, Kel Seliger, with his support of the individual graduation committees, has been huge. No, we're not watering down requirements for kids, but we are recognizing that kids show their success in other ways besides one test on one day.
0: I'm not sure I need to ask this, but what are you most passionate about? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I, well, yeah, I know. It's it's kind of a, an obsession and you don't do education policy work unless you love education. I think I love the game also, you know, it's it's fun being in politics. There are people that have other motives for why they do this work, but I love being able to advocate for kids and you know, I've been doing that for whatever I've been doing, teaching, lobbying, whatever, but... To be able to come to an advocacy organization that's doing this all day, every day was an opportunity that I absolutely could not pass up to be able to, to work for Charles Budd and Raise Your Hand, Texas. I think that we're maybe at a turning point. You know, when, when he started this organization 12, 13 years ago, however long it's been now. There were people that were trying to dismantle our public school system through through vouchers, and he recognized that somebody had to push back, and he's certainly done that. There have been gatekeepers like him for the past over a decade now that have made sure that hasn't happened in the state of Texas. I do feel like we're turning a page as far as people getting involved. People have always been supportive of our public schools, but we got too comfortable with the fact that we thought everybody you know in Austin was supportive of public schools too and some of them just haven't been recently. and I hope that we're get, I think the, the voters in 2018 showed that we needed to advocate for our schools and they showed up and we had a very different session in 2019 than we had in 2017. And so I think that general support from the public has always been there. They just showed up in 2019 and said enough's enough. we're going to support our public schools.
0: And going forward, we need them to show up again.
1: Absolutely. They have to keep showing up. This can't be a one-time thing that happened in 2019. The stakes are really high right now. People have heard me say it all the time. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. If you're making good education policy, you're coming to the middle of the room and working with both sides. So I don't care if the house is blue or red or purple or whatever. I want people to make good policy for kids because
0: it's important for our state. Thank you. Is there a book or podcaster or influencer you'd like to recommend?
1: Um... Uh, well, I'm moving into this new position that I, I am in and you know, leading a team. I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown recently oh, yeah. with Dare to Lead. I love that book. Um, I really
0: like her. About
1: just being authentic in how you're treating people. And I think that translates to the legislature as well. And my work with them is trying to break down as many of those barriers as possible and get people to really talk about why they do what they do and, and work across the aisle. I think there's a lot of messages in in her work that that can speak to how we can function better as uh, a legislative process as well and just doing things for the right reasons and being really authentic about them.
0: Thank you. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Sure. Uh, You and I are both graduates of Leadership Texas, part of the Leadership Women uh, organization, one of their programs. What do you see as the role, the opportunity and or the challenge of being a woman leader? Mm.
1: Um, (laughs) When I started this gig about uh, nine or ten years ago now, it was really interesting because most of the rooms that I sat in were men, and they were Caucasian and older than me. And I had a tendency to sit at the back of the room. And David Anderson, my mentor, was like, what are you doing? Get up here and sit at the table. Um, and he was really, he, he pushed me into that to say, you may not look like everybody in this room, but I think he was trying to say, you're the future of what this room is going to look like. And so helping other women realize that the room may look different than them right now, but it's not always going to look look that way is really important, whether it's age, race, whatever. I think that we're in a a point in some of these boardrooms that they begin to look more like the community in which we live. And that's really exciting. And so I try to push others into that space as well to say, you deserve a place at that table. As a result, school finance is a perfect example of that. One of my colleagues, and I joke about this all the time, is that when I started this work, most of the people in the room uh, were of the demographic that I described previously that were all the school finance. Experts and recently we've been sitting in some rooms where you know seventy-five to eighty percent of the people in the room talking about school finance that are the experts are women and I love that I'm like bring it that's Let's, great <laughs> it's so fun to watch but I, I I just want everybody to feel welcome at those tables and that's the environment that I hope that we're creating here and I hope that we're encouraging in our policy work and with our students as
0: well. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being my interview today. Sure. and it's been fun. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, And you can understand why I wanted to interview my good friend, Michelle Smith. Her passion and her knowledge base is incredible. They do incredible work at Raise Your Hand Texas, and I look forward to working with them in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Annette. Bye. Thank you, Michelle, for your passion and knowledge about educating the 5.4 million children of Texas public schools. Next week, we'll hear from none other than David Anderson from Hill Co. Partners mentioned earlier in this podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to Annette on Education.